Welcome, one and all, to the Film Harmonic with your hosts, Noah East and Andy Ferguson. In episode 69, we once again run into a blank slate when it comes to new films of note, so we'll skip that and dive right into the pick six segment. A roll of the dice tasked Noah with ranking his six favorite films of 2005, while I was tagged with sorting through my six favorite films of 2008. Which leads us into the throwback challenge to close out the show, in which we trotted out two listener commission throwbacks. Netflix's 2017 documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, as requested by Lara Schilling, and Colin Shifley's 2014 drug drama, Animals, requested by West Coast listener John Hawk. So, Andy, no new movie this week. But we have a ton coming next week. Yeah, yeah. Why can't why can't the studios just all get together and, and release these things on a schedule, man? They need to have us in mind when they do these things. We're it's famine right now. Then we'll feast in a few days. And then famine, and then Thanksgiving will be feast again. Yeah, and then hopefully we just keep feasting the rest of the year. Mm, I want to get fat on movies. <laughs> In the absence of a lead film this week, as Andy mentioned, we decided to roll the dice again like we did a few weeks back and treat our small but fervent listenership to another double-barreled best of a random year pick six. And it just so happens that our two years are less than half decade apart from one another, which could lead to some interesting developments between the two lists. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll actually come to that, but we'll find out. And there's no better way to find out than to dig right in right now. Um, I'm doing 2005, you're doing 2008, mm-hmm. uh, in case anybody missed that. Uh, so Andy, let's get right out, out of the gate here. What is the number six film on your list of the best films of 2008? Number six on my list of 2008 films. Uh, I gotta say, didn't think about it until I started watching and research, researching going back through this year. It was a pretty stacked year mm. of films top heavy of films that I remember loving, but I rewatched a lot of them. So we'll see if they hold up. Um, one that has always held up for me and held up to the point where I've ranked it even higher than I thought I would. And it made the list is forgetting Sarah Marshall at number six. Oh, I'm kind of surprised to see this on there. I mean, that's one that, that we both have, have really enjoyed, but like at like a three and a half to four star range, you know, uh, very, I've always held this movie up higher than most of Apatow's canon. Uh, this was like the wheelhouse, though. This was like when everyone was just killing it. You know, this was shortly after Pineapple Express and Knocked Up and Superbad. And this was when the Apatow universe really didn't seem to miss. But what this movie does that the others don't is it has, it has this personal quality because Jason Siegel wrote this film also, as well as starring in it. And it just feels like he's drawing from something in his personal life. And... When this movie came out, I'm not going to lie, I I related to it in a lot of ways. The character in this movie was coming off a five and a half year relationship, which is was so weird to me because I was coming off a five and a half year relationship at the time and kind of just standing in a in a standstill, to be honest, and like like this character is. And so I immediately related to this movie. Um, and so it's always had like a I've had a soft spot for it. Um, rewatching it, it really doesn't lose anything. It still holds up really well. And the amount of strong comedic supporting characters in this outside of, of course, Russell Brand, who was 
kind of catapulted after this movie. That oh, kid, yeah. the character of Aldous Snow in this blew up and got his own movie right after this. Um, One that I think we can both agree is decidedly not as good as this. Get Into the Greek was met with decent reviews and, and box office, but I could never shake the fact that it felt like it wasn't a continuation. It was weird. The Jonah Hill character is not the same character that he is in forgetting Sarah Marshall. It just seems so odd. That that was the most egregious error that it made. I just didn't think it was nearly as funny. Not very funny. I, I feel like Russell Brand is great as a supporting character, like mm-hmm. he is in forgetting Sarah Marshall. He's excellent in it mm-hmm. for that reason, but he can't carry a whole movie. No, I mean, yeah, this is the reason why it was a bad idea to have an Arthur remake with Russell Brand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think we can handle him for that long. But this is the perfect amount of him. It is. Yeah. He's in maybe half of the film and that's perfect. But then you have like all these great supporting performances. Paul Rudd is hilarious in this movie as kind of like the dim-witted island bro who wears visors. And <laughs> He's like a surf instructor. <laughs> yeah. He's funny in it. Um, Jack McBrayer is hilarious mm. as one of the newly married uh, tourists. Uh, I, I think everything's casted really well. You've got Bill Hader as Siegel's best friend. And then the, I mean, Kristen Bell and as the title character and Mila Kunis is cast perfectly in her role. Um, but this is a Jason Siegel kind of like this. When I, when I think about fondly back at the Jason Siegel, like, the days when he was coming up in comedy, this is like the one where I was like, this was, this should have been a, a much bigger hit than it was. This, this movie is the reason that he got the gig for the Muppets movie. Yeah. Because he showed chops musically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And interest of course in Muppets. Yeah. That too. Yeah. That too. <laughs> the guy I would, I said back then I was like, this guy could be like, not to bring this guy up again, but he could be our next Steve Martin. I remember you saying that at the time he's, he hit a more of a, uh, he, 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 he's not interested in Hollywood in the, in the spotlight, obviously, but he's been doing some interesting things lately. Um, I don't know if you saw that AMC series that he created, but I've watched a couple episodes and it's like his mind is in a totally different area, but I like the guy a lot and I love this movie. So it made the list at number six. Uh, number six for me. Um, I flirted really hard with putting really quick uh, with putting, um, the Alex Gibney documentary Enron Enron the smartest guys in the room mm. uh, rewatched it still holds up really really well um, just a really intelligent way to tell that story uh, for laymen who don't know anything about finance and still make it really engaging um, that's all I'm going to say about it but um, ultimately I went with a different film at my number six because it was one of if not the most egregious uh, miss. Uh, 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 snubs from our both of our revenge lists last week, yeah, and that is going here. Tommy Lee Jones's "The Three Burials of Melchiades Estrada." I would bo- I would venture to say this is close to perfect. This movie, yeah, I love this film. Yeah, I, I love all six of the films on my list. Like absolutely, same like four same. and a, four and a half to five stars on all six of mine. Same. Um, and Melchiades, uh. You know, there was a bunch of movies that that could have made this spot, but man, I had to give it to this, especially since we we effed up big time we last did. week by not putting this. And in, the other one you mentioned to me and Jeff Nichols' shotgun stories, yeah. yeah. But um, Melchiades deserved better, uh, both in what uh, Barry Pepper did to him in the film and for what we did to him uh, last yeah, week. Yeah, we Barry Peppered that movie. <laughs> we Barry Peppered that movie. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's I felt like how serendipitous that it came up 
this week. Yeah, weird. Um, perfect spot for it. Number six. Um, we talked about it a few months ago mm-hmm. when I watched it for the first time. Um, yeah, a, a career best performance from Barry Pepper, a guy that has a lot of really underrated performances. He is a little underrated, I would say. Um, Tommy Lee Jones is every bit as good behind the camera as he is in front of it. I mean, this is a debut for for him. Directly. Yeah, and it that does not. Impressive. It does not feel like it. It feels really assured, especially in like some of the quieter moments, the way he chooses to place his camera, the way he chooses to move his camera, mm-hmm. some of the editing choices that like, I know he didn't edit the film, but the director still has a lot of say in that. Um, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's very confident and assured the whole way through. And it probably because you're looking at a guy who has been in, been in the industry Long for time. decades upon decades, honing his craft in front of the camera before he finally decided, you know what, I'm going to direct something. You know, a lot of these guys, they get a little, they get a little clout and decide in their thirties, they're going to direct something mm-hmm. before they're ready. I think uh, I, the first thing that comes to mind is Ryan Gosling's Lost River, for example. Pretty ambitious, but yeah, too much. Come yeah, on. exactly. That that could have been so much better. And so this is an example of if you, if you pay your dues, take your time, learn as much as you possibly can. Um, in your sixties, you can direct something really great. I'm looking at you, Brady Corbett, <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> but yeah, uh, terrific performances from you know uh, uh, from J- January Jones, who she's uh, yeah, honestly better I, than I thought she. I be didn't in. think she had it in her, and um, Melissa Leo. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, uh, oh, oh, Dwight. Yoakam. Of course, Dwight Yoakam. Dwight Yoakam, who's <laughs> really never bad at anything, even if the movie isn't good. You know. Yeah, he's got this quality that he's hateable, but it's so likable. It's it's kind <laughs> of oddly enough, it's kind of like Barry Pepper in that, like, even if the movie isn't good, you know he's gonna be good. Dwight Yoakam's the same. Yeah, he's got a natural ability, even though his primary occup- occupation is a yeah. singer songwriter. So when I was when I was going through the list of trying to figure out what 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 would be on my short list for this, my 10 to 12, you know, for this. And I ran a, upon this film and I was like, Oh no, I forgot about this last week. I decided I was going to get, a, give it a little extra consideration. An excellent. And movie. honestly, it, it earned it actually not, not just because of that. Like it really deserved to be on this. Such list. a good movie. So that's number six for me. What's number five on your list of 2008 films. Number five on this list is a movie that, over time, at one point, I had this as my favorite film of the year. Really? It fell a little bit because, one, I forgot about how strong this year was. And I just, my tastes have changed slightly for the other movies ahead of it mm-hmm. over time. And that's Sam Mendes' Revolutionary Road. All right. Um, I was a huge champion of this movie when it first came out. Yeah, this um, is another film, a second film in a row that you've given me as a throwback on this here show. True. Yeah. 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 Melchiades and now this. Um, This movie, I just watched it again and it is still impeccably directed. The set, the costumes and the cinematography and the classic Tom Thomas Newman score. um, I think this is almost like this is the version of American Beauty without the comedy necessarily that that is better than his own American beauty Mendes. I think that he finally was able to tell this kind of story. I think he got ahead of himself a little bit with American beauty. He was a little young to, to come out of the gate with a movie like that. Um, this is a movie that will hold up over time as I don't think American beauty will. Um, the performances though are just devastating. Kate Winslet. I don't know if she's ever been better than she is in this movie. Yeah. 
Um, DiCaprio is a whole different story. It's hard to it's hard to rank DiCaprio performances. Someday we will. Though he's amazing in this. Oh um, yeah, very difficult roles. Great to see them together again. You know, terrific Michael Shannon performance. I mean, nominated Michael Shannon yeah. performance. Yeah. Uh, he can do those kind of roles in sleep, but sure. he's excellent. And Kathy Bates is also very good in mm-hmm. this film. Um, but then I forgot that um, the next door neighbors are played by David Harbour and Catherine Hahn. Yeah. I, and, and they're both really terrific in it, especially David Harbour. He gets some scenes. Enough. He gets some scenes. He, he gets more to do than Han. And, and like, so because you gave this to me as a throwback, I saw it, you know, semi recently and I had already seen, I've only ever seen season one of stranger things. It's not, for, it's not for me. I, that's Same. fine. Me either. You know, it's fine. I, I don't dislike it or anything, but that was the only thing I'd ever seen him in. And then I saw this and I was like, oh, hey, mm-hmm. it's that guy that just got cast as Hellboy. He has a couple scenes alone with Kate Winslet in this mm-hmm. that are excellent. In scenes. the bar. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. He, I've not seen him much either. Yeah. But this shows you that he is very capable. I imagine he's going to get a lot of opportunities, even with the shitty remake of Hellboy. Yeah. That crashed. And He'll be fine. And He'll so will Sam Mendes. And so will everyone else attached. Yeah. I mean, but this is a this is a very excellent sobering adult drama if you're in the mood for just okay it's two hours of just heavy hitting drama this is kind of like a pitch perfect example of what can be done in that in that genre especially what can be done when you cast all of the right people you know the casting's flawless zoe kazan is in this film that's true in a very good role as well yeah Dylan Baker, he's a creep as always. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we we start getting like we start tunneling down, and we find you know we still are unearthing big names like mm-hmm. you know Dylan Baker and 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 Zoe Kazan. So it's an excellent movie. Uh, like I said, though, I now like four movies this year more than that. So That's, it's a good year. It's pretty wild. <clears throat> um, number five of two thousand and five for me. It is Terrence Malick's The New World. Wow. Okay, this major list. Oh, absolutely. I rewatched it last night. I love that film. Um, uh, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. It was his first collaboration with Emmanuel Luzbecki. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of see like he, he had already started to do the very like the very um, um, monologue uh, narration voiceover thin, thin thing line. in the Thin Red Line. But now he's coupled it with these like sweeping visuals and 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 you know the the lighting is just so intricate and perfect and lots of natural light as well and and different lenses and and the the editing style all of it you know and that's because he brought Luzbecki in to his orbit into his world and um and then it was just lights out from then that's know? a that's been a great pairing for some time now. absolutely um uh and this you know um there is one criticism that you can make of the film, and it is the criticism that a lot of people have with the film, and, and I don't disagree, is that, you know, Malik put all of, focused all of this attention on authenticity, authenticity of the costumes and the locations and the props and even hiring Native American actors and extras and a, and a language coach from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, to teach the extras this this ancient dead version of Algonquin Indian that they spoke in in the film. I mean, all of that, all of that focus on authenticity. And yet he, he still brazenly chose to tell this love story that we all know is historically uh, not factual. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be a little irritating, especially when you read that 
what really happened to Pocahontas was awful and terrible. And, of course, yeah. and I mean, just, just uh, really, really, really just oof, the most ugly, ugly stuff that could happen to a person. Um, and so that's a little asterisk on the film, which is why I have it down at number five and not a little higher than some of the others. But when you start getting to the stuff that you can praise, the performances are out of this world, beginning with uh, uh, Colin Farrell. Um, what uh, what he does with his eyes and this like his, this lonely gaze that he that he that he gives off, you know, it, we see him. He's already chained up at the beginning of the film because you know he's a prisoner for um for starting to to uh uh enlist other sailors in in mutiny um and then he gets forgiven for some reason but you know he's he definitely is a shell of a man he's kind of meek and you know and and what a perfect guy to do that thing you know because he's one of those guys that can really tell a lot about his character to you communicate a lot to you about his character uh just with his eyes um, but really the, like the big star of the, of the film and the one that got the most acting publicity after this was, and I want to see, see if I can get this right. Kriyanka Kilcher, mm-hmm. who plays Pocahontas for lack of a better title in this. Um, she's breathtaking in this, especially when you, when you consider the fact that she was 15 years old at the time. I did not know that. Where was she when we were doing our child, best child performances list, you True. know? Yeah. Um, because she's phenomenal in this. Um, and then you don't see Christian Bale until an hour and 35 minutes into the film. And he gives this really beautifully subtle performance. Um, Christopher Plummer's terrific. Yes, David Thewlis is delightfully evil. That guy in is, un, he's just constantly, I think we overlook him in so many, in so many films. He's been so reliable for so long. Yeah, uh, and and like in so many different things too. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, diverse for sure. Like he can do funny stuff. He can do yeah. he can do it all. Um, yeah, he's he's definitely underrated. Uh, and then um, one of my one of my I, Ben Mendelsohn, you you almost don't even notice. Him. I forgot he was even in it. Yeah, you almost don't even notice him in this. Noah Taylor, I don't. I do remember him, him in this. Really? Because I I mean I genuinely didn't. Um, I can't remember the guy. There, there's an actor in this. I mean, well, West Duty, of course, mm-hmm. is is awesome in it. But there's an actor in this that's in. Um, he's in The World's End, um, and I can't find him in here off the top of my head. Interesting. Um, Eddie Marsan. That's who. Oh, it is. It's yes, Eddie Marsan. Yes. Okay, he's in. Um, this. He's in this, and he's he's whipping uh, uh, Colin Farrell at one point, and he's like, "There's stuff spewing from his mouth." He it's can be terrifying. hateable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just. It, it's it, in a quintessentially Malick way. It is breathtaking to look at. Just the photography is better than anything else. I told Lara, I was like, um, did you know that he has, for lack of a better word, a, a nature documentary? Yeah. The, Are we going to see it? The voyage of time that nobody can in this country can get their hands on. And no one shoots nature. No one shoots nature better than Terrence Malick. Probably not. Yeah. Um, and I'm still dying to see the voyage of time. I don't know. Don't hold your breath. That's, that's all I have to say about the new world. It's, it's a fantastic movie. Even if you can get past some of the, the controversy surrounding well, it. Let's, you know, Malick showing his strengths and some of his weak weaknesses there. A little yeah. Bit. 
some of the tendencies that he has plot wise sometimes that he should take out can't help himself um number four for me is we're going to spend a very short time on this because everyone even infants probably know about this movie at this point and that's christopher nolan's the dark knight um the Dark Knight is the only so-called superhero movie that I would could ever think of ever putting on a pick six of a year list. It's funny that you say that because number seven on my list would have been Batman Begins. Okay. Um, which is the only other superhero movie that I could imagine putting on a pick six list of a year. Yeah. Um, that would have been an interesting crossover had we had them both on there. This was always going to make it. I mean, this yeah. is a genuinely yeah. incredible piece of work. Yeah. It's a feat that, can you imagine the pressure on him to deliver this and to exceed expectations i think is fair oh totally um you know with some help by heath ledger <laughs> um i think this movie is important i think it's going to be looked at probably and when the next afi list comes out i think this will be looked at hard because they're going to want to include something from this canon superhero for lack of a better word yeah universe they're going to want one of those movies on that list. Yeah. I think this, there's no better movie than this. Yeah. This isn't just the gold standard. It's like the, the platinum standard of superhero movies. It's just such a incredibly well edited, incredibly well paced, incredibly well shot film. This is Nolan. Even more so than in Batman begins showing that he can be a spectacle movie maker, but keep it grounded and realist. You know, everything feels tangible. That's what I've always appreciated about this movie. It exists in a real kind of world that, I mean, they filmed it in Chicago and every, nothing feels fantastical in this movie except for the bad CGI for a moment with Harvey Dent's face. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's three and a half seconds. Yeah. I can live with it. Yeah. You didn't need it, but I get it. Um, you know, it's just about perfect. And especially for the genre, it is the most close, closest you're going to get to perfect even with christian bale's terrible batman voice well it's it's helped by the fact that as great as batman begins is and it's terrific um he got all villain though he he got all of that backstory Mm -hmm. and character development all of that knows all that stuff. he got all of that out of the way with that film which allowed him to tell um oddly enough a truly original story considering it's Batman and the Joker and all of that. Like he didn't have to waste his time with backstory Mm -hmm. and all of that. Even on the Joker, he didn't have to. In fact, he gives us the best version ever of the Joker, not just because of the performance, but because no backstory, what makes him so terrifying is there is no backstory. He is unknowable. And every time he, the character himself tells a story to someone that is backstory, it's different every time Mm -hmm. and contradicts the story that he told to the last person. He's an enigma. He's, he it, that that's what makes him so so chaotic and, and terrifying. Every decision made in that film was the right one. Yeah, just it's a very good film. Yeah, it's hard to deny it. I mean, it's it's a like I said, it's iconic. It is. Yeah, and I mean, and we have a new Batman movie coming next year. Hopefully, we'll see. Um, but this is this is the film that every Batman film from here on out will be mm-hmm. compared to. Absolutely, no matter even what. Nolan himself couldn't couldn't live up to it right after this with the dark knight rises uh okay number four for me of 2005 is bennett miller's capote um most 
famous for being the film that got Philip Seymour Hoffman his Oscar. Um, also not- noteworthy because it was Bennett Miller's first film. And yeah. um, talk about a very, very confident and focused debut film from a director. Yeah. Um, it's not my favorite of his anymore because I love Moneyball for some insane reason. Um, so this is a much more serious film. And um, that can that can sway your opinion of it, depending on you know what you what you lean toward. But um, man, the performances in this thing: Catherine Keener, Clifton Collins Jr., uh, uh, Bruce Greenwood, Amy Ryan is in it for a minute. Uh, uh, Chris Cooper's in it for a minute. Um, that I mean, <clears throat> that cast is any director's dream for a first film, you know. And the scenes between Clifton Collins Jr. and and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is legendary back and forth. Yeah, Collins gets actors. a lot to work with here, more than usual. More, way more than usual. He's he's always just some character actor. Mm-hmm. You know, he is he is the second biggest actor in this thing. Like even more so than Keener gets. You know, and she's playing a very famous historic figure. Um. Yeah, Co- Collins, this is the best performance of his career. Uh, yeah, I can't far. think of a better one. Yeah. Um but uh yeah, just such assured directing. The the um the prison scenes uh and and the way he he'll he'll go from a prison scene to like a big party scene. And the way that they segue between one another like that it's just you're kind of like you it's it's kind of it, the lighting changes a little bit. It's so cold in the prison scenes. It's like that got that bluish tint and then it moves to that warm, you know, indoor lighting. But, uh, uh just the way the film kind of just bleeds from scene to scene and it's, it's helped out a ton by the score. I'm trying to find out who did the score. Michael, Michael Dana. Okay. Did, did the score. Um, and it says here that, uh, Dan Futterman did the screenplay. Dan, Dan Futterman, who did, uh, um, I think he's worked with Bennett Miller before. I yeah, well, he plays Val Goldman in the, in, in the, uh, in the birdcage. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's just this movie, man. Um, it, it's, it is kind of one note and, and so that's why I don't have it in the top three, but also this top three is pretty killer that I'm about to hit you with. Um, and I understand people not loving Hoffman's performance saying that it's a little over the top, that it's a little, it's a little, you know, like too acty, but, um, I happen to love it. I think that in any other hands, it would have come across really silly. I think if you know anything about Truman Capote, I think that you would think this is a pretty excellent Mm -hmm. performance. Yeah. He's just so confident throughout it. And of course, and that's how, that's how Hoffman was. He just, you know, he uh, just, just like a bull just rearing right at you just a full speed ahead he, yeah, he and he because he knew he could do anything he just went out there and the, did it one of the 10 one of my 10 favorite actors of all time hands uh, down um where's bennett miller been man you know he takes a while it's, it's it was six years between this and moneyball and then fox catcher was oh when was that been five years ago maybe six years ago yeah six or seven even I haven't looked him yeah. up. Maybe he's working on something. Let's I got to so. tell you, Foxcatcher is better on a, on a rewatch. Yeah, I've only seen it the once. I would very much like to watch it again. Try it again. Cool. Uh, we're in the top three for Yeah, yeah. Three, I don't know, man. These might be perfect movies. 
Um, I, all three of these are five stars for me. They're borderline. Number one is obviously a five star for me. Number two is very close. And this one is also very close. And that is in Bruges. <sighs> um, um, man, yeah. I've seen it at least five times and probably more than that. This movie never fails to entertain the hell out of me while also making me almost roll with laughter the entire time. And then shocks you at times with mm-hmm. violence, the extreme violence that are in short bursts. And, and, and moments of like severe humanity as well. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of career bests, I don't know, man. Brendan Gleeson in this movie is just incredible as a hitman who's hitting that point where he's probably done with his line of work. When you get to be as sensitive as his character is about things, it probably is time to stop killing people for money. Yeah, especially when you see an accidental death that he has to be forced to, yeah. to witness um, and weighs on him. And you then know, paired, though, with Colin Farrell. I was worried that we wouldn't have any crossover. And there it then, is. And oddly enough, Colin Farrell is the crossover. Talk about an actor have. who I think we've finally gotten. I mean, at, for a while there, it was like fun to make fun of him because he was just some bad boy, mm-hmm. hot guy who had a sex tape out. And, well, and yeah. Everyone, and and he, he was kind of brooding too much. And is he really a good actor? Well, yeah. At that time, you know, all I had really seen him in was The Recruit. Well, yeah, there was a lot of stuff at the time. And I mean, phone booth. Yeah, but at the same time, he did a movie in his home country, Intermission, that was really cool. Yeah. And, well, see, I've not seen that. But one. he was a hot dude, you yeah. know, basically. Yeah, hot like, Irish guy. Can he really do this? And he has gone on to really deliver a lot of diverse performances, especially now that he's hooked up with um, Yorgos Lanthimos as well. Um, but man, he is hilarious in this movie, but also very. Uh, like you said, there's a there's a humanity to both of their performances. And when you get to where it's going. Um, oh, boy, there, there's some there's some high stakes. There's some really kind of scary moments in this movie, and they all pull it off. And it meets up McDonough's. Martin McDonough's. Just brazen inner energy and his, you know, probably he's probably too masculine for his own good. He would go, he would later go on to do some movies that I don't think worked as as well as this one. But um, when you meet that when he writes a character and then a villainous character and, and then the way Ray Fine plays this character in this movie, my God, those two guys are on the same page so much that it's like mind blowing. Yeah, because when Fine shows up and it's not until way later on in the movie. But man, I don't know if he's ever been better. It's close. I mean, Grand Budapest is a phenomenal performance, but he is so scathingly awful as a person in this movie, but also enormously funny. Yeah. The <laughs> the only reason that Grand Budapest is a better performance is because he carries the whole movie, whereas True. this, he shows up in the second half of the third act of the film, basically. But man, the the, uh, the standoff between those two, Gleason oh. and, and oh Fine, my God. is just amazing. I mean, it is it is a very excellent, well, another debut too, mm. directorial debut. I mean, feature length, yeah, yeah. He did a short. He did it. What was it? The one that was nominated? For it was on a shoot, train. Six shooter, I think. Six shooter, yeah, yeah, that's the one. But yeah, this is this is this is. I couldn't not have it in the top three. Oh yeah, it would be in my top three of this year too. I bet. 
just by looking at it. So that's my my bronze. What's yours? My bronze. Um, this is not going to come as any shock to you. My bronze. Um, I mentioned to you that one of the reasons I didn't put the Enron documentary on here is because I already had a documentary, and that is Jeff Feuerzeig's The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Oh, uh, yes, that was the year of this film. That was the year of this film. Um, still one of the most fascinating documentaries I've ever seen in my life. Daniel Johnston just died last year. Did he die Pretty last? recently? I, I think don't he died last exactly summer. When. So, did you rewatch this? No, I did not. Okay. I but I've seen this. Probably five or six or seven times. Wow, I did not know that. I've only I've seen it twice, maybe. I've seen this plenty. I don't think I've seen it in 10 years. When my friend Dan Snodgrass gave me this movie, I had never even heard of Daniel Johnston. Whoa. And I watched the film and started to fall in love with his music. Um, you know, you know how it is. For anybody who doesn't know, who isn't familiar with Daniel Johnston's music, um, there are large chunks of it that are damn near unlistenable sure yeah but then it's kind of like ariel pink you know like just absolute just you're sifting through unlistenable weirdness and then one of them will just hit you and you're like whoa the same guy that wrote all of that wrote this and it'll be the most touching musically beautiful lyrically beautiful melodically beautiful thing you've heard and there's a sincerity to all of his work lyrically too um if anybody doesn't know who Daniel Johnston is, he was a popular um, uh, uh, Texas folk singer in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, he, a very, very gifted piano player who stopped playing piano because every, all the cool guys were playing guitar. So he started playing guitar. Um, and just by sheer force of will, got himself on television um, when MTV came to town and became a real cult hero there in austin texas um started hanging out with uh the dudes from the butthole surfers and a few other people um and started doing psychedelics had an extremely bad trip started being convinced that he was possessed by the devil and other people were possessed by the devil and just became mentally ill and (laughs) at the height of his fame recorded an album for Sony records while in a mental institution. Um, was that fun? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and some of these songs are just some of the most hauntingly beautiful love songs, heartbreak songs, songs about Casper, the friendly ghost. I mean, like, as well as a visual artist, a beautiful visual artist, he, he went back and started playing piano later on in his life. And he is much, much better a piano player than he is a guitar player. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's just a visionary a musician and visual artist. And it's such a tragic tale. It's a cautionary tale. It's, but it's also a fascinating, fascinating story. Just, I mean, the kind of stuff that you couldn't, you could not make up. Um, you just couldn't. Uh, and um, like I mentioned, he died last year. Like I said, I believe it was last summer. I think so. Yeah. But um, man, and and people came out of the woodwork to do tribute shows. Um, you he know, was loved by many. There yeah. was even, I mean, w- he, ten years before he died, there was a Daniel Johnston tribute album that yeah, so Bright Eyes. Artists. Bright Eyes was on. M. Ward was on. I mean, mm-hmm. like the Wilco was on it. Yeah, M. Ward did the story of an artist, which is still my favorite song of his. 
I mean, mine too. Yeah, yeah, that's that is a haunting, haunting, heartbreaking the, song. The version of Devil Town by Bright Eyes is pretty cool. That's too. a pretty good one because <laughs> Devil Town's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Just if you haven't seen this film, um, and you've been wanting to do it, if you've not seen this film because you've never heard of it or Daniel Johnston, don't even, don't read anything else about him than than what I've already told you. Just give just it a shot. Give this film a shot because it's it is a fascinating real life documentary. Excellent to hear this is so high. Yeah. Oh, I love this movie. If I was making my favorite documentaries of the century so far, it would be in the top five probably. Wow. It would be in your pick six. All right. Yeah, it would. All right. Fair enough. Let's go silver. Mm, Ain't nothing wrong with silver. Here's one that shot up a little bit for me on a rewatch. Always really liked it. Um, But in the beginning, I thought it was good, but but the performance was lifting the movie up for people. Um, I'm having trouble. Oh, I do remember what beat him. So this was supposed to be the year that Mickey Rourke won an Oscar. Um, but Sean Penn won his second Oscar of that decade. Uh, in my mind, I just remember that Mil- Mickey Rourke won. He didn't win. Sean Penn won for milk this year, which would have just missed my list. Huh? Um, Mickey Rourke and Darren Aronofsky's the wrestler. <laughs> What an amazing, it was, it was a story because it was a huge comeback to, he disappeared from the world. Well, yeah, that's, that's why I'm, I'm glad that you put it like Mickey Rourke and Darren Aronofsky's the, the wrestler because mm-hmm. like the performance that Mickey Rourke gives in this film is, it drives the movie. It's every bit as important as the directing. This is a heartbreaking performance. This man, this movie gets better with each rewatch. Um, you get the sense as you're watching it and it's no spoiler that things aren't going to go well for this guy. And, um, but, and and even though Aronofsky has to follow the same kind of trajectory as most movies like this, the guy who's been out of his daughter's life, trying to get back in it, the guy who can't have a relationship with anyone, he's going to make it crumble because he's so obsessed with one thing. Those are cliched, you know, plot plot advances but the way that aronofsky directs it is just it's scary how how real and how how you feel like you're in the movie the entire time because there's a lot of shots where you're following from behind him it looks really grainy too it looks like it was filmed on a specific type of film uh and the way he gets these really kind of sweaty and like kind of like roll up your sleeves and just get to work performances out of these actors. Marissa Tomei's never been more like she's never been more willing. It seems to go deep down into the darkness of a character than, than she does in this movie. And you totally buy her in this role. Yeah. You, you almost forget that it's her. Like she's willing to go so deep down that she's unrecognizable and she's, she really feels like a real person and not a Hollywood actor who's been doing it for 30 years. Right. And she's convincing and that's incredible. Well, she was nominated too. That's very deserving. And then you get Evan Rachel Wood as his daughter and she only has a few scenes, but she's excellent in this. Um, I've totally forgot that, Todd Barry, the comedian, plays his boss at the at the deli. I forgot go- about that too. So I've only seen this once. I follow Todd Barry on Twitter and he's <laughs> extremely funny. I highly recommend it. Every time an actor or something or like a uh, a media outlet posts like 
what do you think Daniel Craig's best performances are? And he's like, I don't know, but I'm great in The Wrestler. Like he says, <laughs> <laughs> he has like two scenes where he's like, get back to work. <laughs> He'll be like, he retweets like, what's the most overlooked performance of uh, uh, Colin Farrell's career? And he'll be like, I don't know, but I'm pretty overlooked in The Wrestler. <laughs> um he's he's funny in this um but the thing is like i don't know i i think this is my favorite darren aronofsky movie um and and i gotta mention it in a way um he got he managed to get well mickey rourke and aronofsky got together with bruce springsteen and they managed to get a great piece of work out of him the, the title song to this movie and i forgot about how just poignant the final moment of this movie is uh the way it leaves you and then the way it slowly fades into the to the song in the credits it's just like if it, it this movie hits me like a ton of bricks every single time and uh i i always want to sit there throughout the entire credits more than any movie almost well not any but i try to watch the credits as much as possible um but this one, I I really, really want to every time yeah. um, to let that song play out because it's such a terrific song. I've only seen this once, and this is one that I would really like to watch again sometime. You should. You should. Um, Rourke didn't really, didn't really do much after this and hasn't. No, he did Iron Man 2. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Look, You're right. Sean Penn is very good in Milk. Mickey Rourke deserved deserve that that year. Yeah. Uh, and much like I think Sean Penn and I and I have always liked Sean Penn, but he steals awards from better performances when he took it from Bill Murray and Lawson translation as well. I like you, man, but no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough about the wrestler. What's your silver? My silver is also a very gritty, grainy looking film. And that Ooh, is, I know what it is. You know what it is? It's I know what it is. Can I guess? Go ahead. It's a John Hillcoat movie. It is John Hillcoat's <laughs> The Proposition. All right. <laughs> wow. Wow. You're, you're I on wanted it. So f- so I, I, it took everything in me to go, the Melchiades is not your only Western on this list. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie we've always shared a, a mutual love for. Yeah, you know me too well. I, I, I watched this, not last Christmas, but the Christmas before last. Um, whew. Yeah, this this thing. This well, it's thing. not hard because when you say here's a really gritty movie, my first movie that comes to mind is the proposition. Is, is flies <laughs> buzzing around everyone's face in this film? John yeah. Hurt looking absolutely dis- disgusting. <laughs> Danny Houston's hair is a mess. <laughs> Danny um, Houston is a fucking evil person in this movie. <laughs> Danny Houston is an evil person in a lot of movies. Yeah, a I bit don't too, a bit know, too often. I don't know that he's ever been more evil. Than, no. than he is in this. Um, yeah, I believe this was number one on my list of the best westerns of the 21st century. It's probably on mine too. I think it was. Might have been number one on both of our yeah. lists. Yeah, this. I thing, love this film. This thing is so good. Whether it's um, the score by the writer of the film as well. <laughs> your boy. Yeah, this is your account. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge Nick Cave fan. Yeah. yeah. Um that not only did he write the score, but he wrote the film itself too. It feels like one of those classic Nick Cave songs spread out into a movie. Yeah, it really does. Um but you yeah, it, you get uh you get this dusty, dirty, sweaty, fly infested 
um, vision of the of Australia in the turn of the century. It's got um, your boy too, though Ray Winstone. It does. It has barn burner perform- performances from Danny Houston, Ray Winstone, and Guy Pierce. Pierce is great in this. And then it has um, supporting performances that are pretty damn good from John Hurt and Emily Watson yeah. as well. Um, yeah, this was one of those films, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I, we talked about this last week, I think, where I said that, you know, we really thought that Guy Pierce was going to be the Australian answer to Brad Pitt, and it never really materialized. And then the proposition came around, and I thought, this is it. He's going to do it. This is, it's just a little late, but here he is, you know? And again, it never really came to fruition. But what a, what a career he's put together still. Man, the chops are there. Great actor. This, not Memento, this is Guy Pierce's best performance. He's, well, he's very good friends with Nick Cave and he understands the way to play this character. Yeah. You have to believe that he was sitting in on the writing process almost. Even. Yeah, because he's an outlaw. He's a bad guy. But he's a bad guy that is forced into a situation where he has to make a moral decision, a decision of morality, family decisions, too. Exactly. And and for anybody who hasn't seen the film, it's a gang of outlaw brothers and they've captured the youngest brother and they're going the cops are going to put him to death if Guy Pierce, the middle brother, doesn't convince the older brother, who's the baddest of them all cannibal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To. um to give himself up uh, or and which he's not going to do. So they need Guy Pierce to capture the oldest brother in exchange for the younger brother who isn't innocent himself, but is a lot more innocent than he can still be saved. He, yes, he's, he's redeemable. <laughs> he's a teenager. Almost. Whereas Danny yes. Houston's character is not redeemable. And Ray Winstone's the head of the, of the police. Basically. Yes. And he is every bit as corrupt as the, as the outlaws. Great that, performance. Yeah, the, the whole thing, man. This this is it's a fantastic film with a fantastic cast with incredible music and incredible writing. And then the last 10 minutes. It's it's difficult to watch, but that last 10 minutes. I mean, this is it's a the whole film is a bloodbath. I feel like this and Melchiades in the same year ushered in that new wave of western. And the, and then in the point, I don't think there's been a western since these that have, has been better. You can argue No Country for Old Men is a Western, but I don't know. Um, these two movies, though, are the type. They, they don't exist in the pre-Western era where everything's going to be OK. You know, I mean, things might get a little testy, but the good guys are going to they're going to be all right. Not, not in these movies. You, you have an unease as you're watching yeah, this because they're a little more honest. They're a little There's more a violence realist. that is a little a little scarier than the typical Western. Yeah. Know? Unforgiven had a little bit of that. It was pretty, but it's still tame yeah. in comparison. It, yeah, it's still more of the old Hollywood western, almost in a way. These are not at yeah. all. Well, we're handing out gold now. Mm-hmm. A movie that's only rised in my ranks um, would be in my probably would be in my top ten of that decade. Is Jonathan Demme's Rachel Getting Married? That is your number one of twenty two thousand and eight. Yes. Yes. A perfect film. It's a masterpiece. It's probably my favorite Jonathan Demme movie. And I love several of his movies. He gets something out of Anne Hathaway that I don't know if any, any other director has. Um, I like her a lot. Always have. I think she's very, very talented, but 
he just he extracts something from her in this movie that's just remarkable to watch. And Rosemary DeWitt as Rachel, her sister, marrying Tunde Adebempe in this movie, who who's really shows himself capable in an, in an, in a role that gets more than you would think. Sure, yeah. As far as like musicians acting for the first time in a feature film of that decade, that's gonna go high on he's, the list. He's solid. I mean, he shows up in, in some stuff. He just showed up in She Dies Tomorrow, and he was very good. At, he was fine. Um, he's 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 solid in this. Um, Bill Irwin, though, as we've talked about many, many times, we don't need to go too long on this. Uh, he kind of was introduced to the world more with this movie because, you know, he's shown up in things, but but as a very small character in a lot of stuff. But in this, he gets to play the role of uh, the he's the father of the two girls. And it's a very difficult role. But he has this supreme gentleness and this likability and an understanding about him that just brings the whole movie it, it, as an emotional core to the movie. And he's he's so realistic in it too. Like he is. He feels like a real person, not not a not an actor. Absolutely. Like, it's, it's, it's the most strain on him in this movie too. It, it might be the most natural performance in the, in the film. I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. And Hathaway gets a lot of credit in this because she has the showiest performance. But man, what he does here is I think he does kind of pull the movie in a little more and give it this warmth. So by the time you're done with it, and I haven't gotten into the the vision of Demi and the way he directs this also adds to the realness of it. It feels like almost like a camera crew filming the events of the wedding. Yeah. It films like a it's like a documentary style. A lot of handheld, a lot of you know. But he's a ma- he was a master of that by then. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's missed definitely RIP, but uh I think he's one of the more interesting movie maker American filmmakers of like the last 40 years because of the amount of different films he released in his career. Yeah. They didn't all work, of course, but man, this is him working at a high level. Yeah. I love this film. I I don't know what your number 1 is. I don't. You should. I, when you say it I'll be like, "Oh yeah, but I can't think of it right now. Number one for me is Michael Haneke's cachet. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I rewatched this a couple of weeks ago for the revenge list mm. and realized that it's not technically a revenge film, which is I don't why think I, so either. Yeah. That's why I left it off the list. But then when this opportunity came around, I was like, well, hell perfect opportunity to talk about one of my absolute favorite films of the, of the century. Um, this for me is Haneke's best film. Um, Cachet tells the story for, for anybody who, who isn't familiar. Cachet is, um, <clears throat> is the story of a affluent French family. The father is a, a book review has, uh, has a book review, a uh, television show. And the mother works. I don't even know what she does. She works just, you know, at some firm, uh, uh, in a, in a big building, some fancy job, you know, their son is on the swim team. They have this idyllic life seemingly, but really they, their marriage is under a lot of strain. Classic Haneke setup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and their marriage is already under a lot of strain. They barely speak to one another. And these video cassette tapes start appearing on their front doorstep in just plain plastic grocery bags. And what's on the tape um, is a stationary shot um just on a tripod of um the front door of their house 
someone is filming the front door of their house for hours and hours on end and then sending the tapes to them in a bag just on their front doorstep. They have no idea why. They have no idea who it is. Um, they can't seem to catch the person in the act. Um, and uh, these these tapes are accompanied by children's drawings that are cryptic and creepy. And um, because it's Haneke, he loves to focus not only on familial relations, but there's always a political overtone. In this film, um, it's his favorite political uh, issue to discuss, and that is the French Algiers, uh, uh, um, you know, the 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 socio and political and even military uh, conflict that the two countries have have been um, uh, engaged in for for many many years. Um, we find out. I'm going to try to stay away from spoilers, but yeah. we, f- we find out that. Um, uh, the, the, the father, George, he, he grew up, uh, with a, for a short time with a young Algerian boy who he didn't want his family to adopt. And so he lied and said that the kid had, um, I don't know, it was like typhoid fever or, or something, some, some very contagious disease. And, that convinced his parents not to adopt the kid. And he has a sneaking suspicion that the tapes are, um, are somehow in relation to that, um, that someone might be trying to get back at him for the misdeeds that he, that he inflicted upon this kid when they were both children. And that's where I'll leave it because I could tell you everything about this and I, I may or may not be right because it has one of, if not the most ambiguous endings mm-hmm. in recent memory. Um, and even, even still, if you don't know what you're looking for in that final frame, you could miss it entirely. It's a, it's a pretty a phenomenal feat of editing and sound editing in this movie. Um, yeah, it's, I haven't seen it in a long time and I can still remember most of it. Yeah. Um, it's hard to get out of your brain. In in, in classic Haneke fashion, there are a couple of moments of extreme violence that are just, that are abrupt. I, I mean, so abrupt and so very, very brief, but so jarring. Um, the, the main one that is from the cover of the poster of the film, um, that, that main one, you know, I knew it was coming. I was waiting for it to come. And then when it still, when it happened, I was, Oh, you're still not prepared. I I gasped and put my hand over my mouth and just, it was, um, man, I've seen this movie three or four times and it is so rewarding every time because you're still unwrapping some of the things that, you know, uh, you know, is it, is it so-and-so or is it so-and-so or, you know, and, and also why, um, it's, it's it's such a great mystery and there's there's so many layers to this film because Haneke has so many things he wants to talk about and say I um I if I were making a top 10 of that decade this probably would be on the list. Mm. I really really love this film. It is my favorite Haneke, which means it's one of my favorite foreign language films of all yeah. time. I haven't seen it in so long that I'd have to revisit it to assess where it lands for me in his work. But I'm looking forward to it. I, I want to like see some of his films I've never seen too. Yeah. I, I've, I've never seen the piano teacher. 
Yeah, neither have I. I've never Time seen... Time of the Wolf. Yeah, Time of the Wolf is one of the first one that comes to mind for me. Um, I've never seen Benny's video. I've seen... I'm... I've seen half of it. Yeah. I was watching it recently, fairly recently on Criterion and never finished it. What a fascinating director. I, I hope that that last film that he made that got so-so reviews, I really do hope that that wasn't really his last film. It's I called hope it, Happy End, I think. Exactly. I really hope that he does. He just pulls out one more out of nowhere. See, he's getting, he's getting up there. He is getting up there in age. Yeah. There it is. We did it. We finally got through it. I mean... I mean, we knew it was going to take a minute. There was a lot to unpack right there. Yeah, almost an hour long just on just on these these six. Good time to take a break then. It is a great time to take yes. a break. Yes, so we'll do that. And when we return in 60 seconds, we'll cross off not one, but two throwback challenges requested by listeners. The first will be the 2017 Netflix documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. And we will follow that up with talk revolving around the 2014 indie flick Animal. Welcome back to the show. We've recently received an influx of listener commissioned throwback challenges. So in the absence of a new film to discuss this week, it seemed the perfect opportunity to cross two throwbacks off of the list. And we will start with the Netflix documentary from Academy Award nominated director David France, 2017's The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. It's about the, uh, um, how, how do I say this? I think it's about a lot of things. It's, it's not just about what the title would suggest, I would say. Yeah, because it, it, sure, it is about Marsha P. Johnson, who was a, a legend in not only the gay rights movement, but the trans rights movement. She was a, she was a trans woman who um, at this time, and the film shows this pretty well, at that time when, you know, in the 70s and 80s, leading up to her death in 1992, um, you know, the gay community was for some reason, very, very apprehensive to welcome the trans community into their absolutely exclusive club. And we see some footage of some rallies that will break your heart of, of, you know, trans people getting booed off stage. Some of the footage that is on display here is like, wow, I'm learning a lot here based on the footage that they were able to acquire for this film aside from all the new stuff that they film but it but it does seem at times like as as much as the title is is about marcia herself it really does seem like at times that the film is almost more about um victoria cruz yeah also sylvia rivera and even Sylvia rivera than it is marcia p johnson and um you know marcia died um in what the police call a a accident a suicide a suicide even um, and her friends, um, and, and the community at large never believed that. And so, uh, Victoria Cruz is, has set out to investigate in detail and prove 
that uh, that that's not the case. Victoria Cruz is a fascinating individual herself. She's never met. She had never met Marsha P. Johnson, but she has this forever kind of link to her mm-hmm. because you see that many, many, many years ago, Victoria Cruz um, experienced a lot of the same kind of, uh, well, a lot of violence and prejudice uh, acts um, in very similar ways um, because she is also a member of the trans community herself. Yeah, and, and it focuses not just on the trans community, but like the trans street community, people that were living on the streets. There's a lot of this movie. Like I said, it's about much more than just the surface level stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a bit really big uh, pocket of this movie that is a, about homelessness. Too. Yeah. Especially the Sylvia Rivera stuff. That Oof. stuff will break your damn heart, man. Yeah. It's a, uh, th- there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is just very, very difficult. Um, this is a. I think I like this a lot more than I thought I was going to, because of the amount of footage from the original era that they have, the era of the Stonewall riots and what what progressed after that, and how really at the forefront Sylvia Rivera was in that whole movement. Um, she was always the kind of person who reacted against the spotlight as opposed to Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson was about the face of it all. Mm-hmm. Sylvia Rivera is a man, troubled, troubled character you find out. And, and their relationship was fascinating. Um, and then you get into this entire, there, there's a lot going on in this movie. You get the through line is that Victoria Cruz is investigating it. So that kind of pushes everything forward. And there's, there's a whole, trying to find the truth thing about this movie that it, that's its whole other movie. Yeah. And it, and it's so slow going. I mean, there's, there's a scene in which we see her just making phone calls and like it, hanging up and dialing mm-hmm. again and hanging mm-hmm. up. And, and you start to realize she's probably not going to get anywhere with this. No. Um, you know, I don't want to say anything into that, but I mean, it is a tough road she's going on and she's, she's supposed to be retiring. She's 70 years old and man, the energy she has in this that she finds while investigating this is pretty fascinating and and some of the lee the the leeway the headway that she that she makes pretty big is yeah. just out of sheer determination and luck and you're just like wow she got farther than i thought she would she's honestly. doing it basically with a, a an intern yeah yeah <laughs> um and then you get the character of randy wicker too this guy um who had a relationship he was collaborative with these people yeah he was he was marcia's roommate Right. And he was kind of, I don't know, he's hard to pin down um, where he stands because he's, when she interviews him basically in his now 70s, asking him about some of those instances where if they got harassed, if the mob was involved, yeah. he kind of seems like, I don't know really, or it's so fascinating. There's one scene in particular where she meets him, she meets up with him at a bar and starts mm-hmm. interviewing him and you can see it wash over his face. He had never even considered the idea that he, that through his actions could have been responsible for others possibly taking her life. Mm-hmm. And you can see the guilt wash over him. And he thinks he's speechless. Oh my God. I mean, it's, it's chilling, really chilling. Yeah. This is, um, this is a important film. I'd say, um, it's, uh, the direction by David France, 
Um, I've never seen How to Survive a Plague. Have you? No, I've not. But it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Overall, I like what he does here. Some of the modern day stuff when he's following Victoria Cruz around is it's okay. It, it, it's decent. I don't love it. Um, and I got to say the one thing though, that I was really shocked that I thought was distracting was the score by Bryce Desner. I yeah. wasn't a big fan of it. It was too meandering at times. It was like really heavy and violin and like thundering with vigorous like strings. And it almost took away from the scenes. I thought, yeah, and that and was I'm a huge Bryce Desmond. Yeah, that was one of the things you were looking most forward to. It, before we put a pin on this film, I do want to mention that um, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that there is some controversy around the film. That um, uh, uh, transgender filmmaker Tourmaline um, has claimed that um, that David France appropriated her research from a grant application for her film project. It was a short film called Happy Birthday, Marsha. I've heard of this film. Um, and it was a narrative short um, now, France says that uh, he was already well into his research um, by the time he became aware of of her work and acknowledged that, uh, you know, uh, that they they that they had talked um, briefly, but in the interest that, you know, he he was already you know, well into his work and he wanted to make sure that there wasn't any like crossover and that he wasn't going to be stepping on anything that that she was doing on her film. Um, but that's all he had already been well into the making of the film and didn't use any of the information that he got from her when making his, hmm. um, and she, she argues that's not true, but, um, uh, Jezebel, Jeze, both Jezebel and the advocate both did investigations and found that there was no evidence to support the allegation. Um, but I, I think it, it's worth noting that there is an allegation that he appropriated much of, of this, um, interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I still, um, while it's aesthetically not, you know, my favorite kind of documentary and I know it's not yours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is helped a ton by that archival footage. I could not believe how, not only how much, but how quality the archival footage is. Yeah. Every bit of it is do. essential. Yeah. This is four stars for me. I'm at the, I'm at the same level. Yeah. And then, um, so I mentioned that, uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, John Hawk, who lives in Los Angeles now, um, worked on a, a film that I did, uh, several years ago. I mean, we're talking like, oh man, almost a decade ago. Um, he played, he played a police officer in some movie that I was in. Um, he unbeknownst to me listens to the show all the way out in LA. Yeah. That was nice to hear. Um, and you mentioned last week that he wrote a really nice email, a really sweet email. Um, and he's worked on a couple of Colin Shifley's films. And this is definitely the most prominent of Colin Shifley's films. And that is the 2014 film animals. Um, and wanted us to review it. I'm wondering if he was in his 2018 film, all creatures here below, because after watching this movie, I realized that, Colin Shifley immediately followed up this movie with another collaboration with David Dastmalkian. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, that's how I would say David Dastmalkian, who wrote this movie. Yeah, he wrote Animals. And he also wrote these, the film from 2018. I wonder if that's the film that... That John Hawk worked on? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. We have to find out. Anyway, this movie written by David Dastmalkian and starring him with Kim Shaw as the main couple in this movie. Mm-hmm. A very... Panic and Needle Park or 
I was heaven knows what. Yeah, I was very much. I was very much reminded of heaven knows what. So this is a. I guess you could say, at the surface, it's a typical, um, heroin drama, addiction, an addict movie. Yeah, it is. I mean, it essentially, is. it is. It doesn't do a lot that you haven't seen, but what it does have going for it is a couple of performances that are pretty authentic, <laughs> and um, and the movie, to its credit, doesn't ever get to that point where you're like, oh, here's a big scene that we're we're gonna have, no big like, oh no, we're gonna have this awful you know od crazy scene or like some big showy moment it doesn't do that yeah i think it respects the material it's understated in that way and it's nice colin shifley's direction is pleasant i would say the colors look look good the world seems very realistic and you know you're so used to seeing david desmelkian in small roles in bigger movies where he's kind of a weirdo and because he's got that look about him They, they just you can't help but want to cast him in that strange role. Like in, I was reminded in prisoners when he's that plays that role of the crazy person in that movie. Yeah. And of course the dark Knight, which, which we've already mentioned, he's in that movie for a brief moment. Um, as one of Joker's kind of like stand-ins for one of his kind of that big moment where they have, where, where it's like a supposedly, um, commissioner Gordon's like funeral. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the shooting. Um, He's in that scene and he's got this menacing face. Yeah. He looks like he's constantly ready for Halloween. Yeah. He looks like a Halloween character. <laughs> he just kind of does. He's pale, washed out. He's got the, Bony, the dark, the dark hair and the, the jutting jaw structure, all of it. He's got yeah. a look. And, but in this movie, he's, he's, um, gets a lot more to work with. He wrote his own character. Sure. Um, probably a passion project. And Kim Shaw is someone who I've never seen before. Yeah. Canadian actress. I. Um, who is every bit as good as he is. They're good together in this movie. They're both excellent in this. I, I kept comparing it in my mind to heaven knows what. And like, while it's not, uh, I think Shifley's directing is actually very solid in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's a, it's a, a put down to say that it's not as good as the safety brothers directing in heaven knows what, but um, it's very, very solid. But I think what it lacks maybe very slightly in comparison to that film on the directing side. Um, I think I would take David Desmalkian's performance over Caleb Landry Jones's performance. And, I definitely would. And Kim Shaw is, she's good. incredible. She's in very this. good in this. She's very, very good in this. She's very believable in this. Um, you know, I've never even been in the same room as heroin. So like, uh, I, I can't speak to the authenticity of it, but it really seemed like it seemed to me that they got the authenticity downed. I mean, like really down to a point. Yeah, um, I would, the, I would guess so. I'm, I'm not an expert in it either, but yeah, I would say it did seem very believable. The, the lingo, the, the slang that they used, the, the, the drug deals seemed very, was, yeah, the desperation in these characters, mm-hmm. um, and the links they will go to achieve just the next score is um heartbreaking it is there's a couple of scenes that she has that are really uncomfortable too and there's those moments that uh you know I, I think most everybody in this country is has has had a loved one or a friend or known somebody somewhat close to them that has been addicted and has had a, a addiction issues regardless of of the source of their addiction 
and like you know there are moments in this film that 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 uh where they do get them themselves they do get their hands on some money and they've already said you know if we get some money we're going to do this and we're going to get cleaned up and we're going to they've they have this plan in mind and then the moment they get the money they waste it all you know and you just it, to watch it on screen you're just thinking oh my god come on man this was that was your chance and now you have to resort to something even more extreme in order to to get yourself out of that hole and it's just yeah but yeah when you when you are a slave to something it's 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 tough yeah. to yeah it's tough to watch and then i don't think it's spoiling anything to say that near the end of the film dasmalkian's character um ends up in a treatment facility uh not of his own volition um mm-hmm. he's forced there uh, and the two are separated and you have these these scenes a lot a big chunk of the third act of the film there the two of them are separated and Kim Shaw's character spends a lot more time with John Hurd than she does David Dasmalkian. John Hurd and a pizza. But um, th- that's when I think even the performances take a- another turn and is what makes them even more impressive. Uh, I really liked this film a lot. I like this film too. I think the first image of the movie and the last image of the movie are tied together nicely as well. Absolutely. The the beluga, the beluga whale that you that like starts out the very beginning of the film. Um, that's pretty moving. And then the, I, I don't want to spoil anything with the yeah, ending. No, but, we don't uh, need to talk about that. But, uh, but this was a nice little surprise. Yeah. I'm a four, four stars on I'm this one. I'm at four as well. Yeah. I think so, there's no reason not to go at least four on this. No, this is one of those hidden gems that, uh, that I think people should definitely go get on Amazon prime, man. It's, it's fucking free. And I'm um, interested in, in then, like I said, that film that he also stars in and wrote. Yeah. I will all probably creatures here below. The star of it is Karen Gillan. Ooh, I like Karen Gill. And he's yeah. the co-star. I'm into that. Uh, you know, if you, if you're, hmm, this is not for the faint of heart. It's hyper-realistic. There's serious drug use in this. It is depressing as hell this film is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you can take that, I I definitely recommend watching this. There's some great performances, some really good directing. It's, it's not overly long. It's, it's got no, a perfect it's quick. length. It's quick. It's, I mean, in fact, I think it's an hour and 26 minutes. It's It's pretty short. Yeah. Highly recommended. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Um, it was a good one. It was a real good one. It was fun. Yeah. And and about what we've come to expect length wise. Of course. Uh, remember to subscribe to the film harmonic on Apple podcasts, leave us a review and a generous rating. Uh, you know, if you want to subscribe also on Spotify, Google play, uh, which I hear is going away soon. Uh, and wherever else you happen to get your podcasts, um, send your suggestions, uh, like Lara and John did, um, to the, to the filmharmonic at gmail.com, uh, and we'll do them. Uh, we're going to be back next week with, uh, essentially the opposite of the show we had this week. We will have three, count them, one, two, three new movies to discuss, starting with the new film written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and available on Netflix. Um, that is the trial of the Chicago seven. And we'll follow that up with Miranda July's newest film, Kajillionaire, which was in theaters for a spell recently, uh, but it hits VOD this week. And then we will end with the social justice documentary, Time, which has been racking up awards for its director, Garrett Bradley, along the festival circuit this season. So that, wow. I didn't find out about that movie until today. And whew, that Sounds looks fantastic. That looks powerful. I'm looking forward to seeing all three of those movies, actually. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know. I can't remember the last time or if ever we've had three movies, three new movies. I don't think we've ever done three. 
Yeah. Which is why we don't have a pick six next week. Yeah, no pick six. We are going directly into a throwback challenge. It's another one that we are pulling from our email requests. And it is the Christian Slater dramedy vehicle Pump Up the Volume, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary. Or at least from what I vaguely remember, it's a dramedy. I don't know. I guess we'll find out soon enough. I can confidently assume, though, that it's turned up to 11 minimum. <laughs> because you got you to pump it up. Got to pump it up. Uh, this one was given to us by uh, an old friend of ours, Richard Carr, or as he likes to be called, Dick. I am Dick. Um, and Dick, uh, again, another one of those folks that I, I had no idea he listens. Um, pleasantly surprised by that. And in classic Dick fashion, he had a very pervy reason for wanting us to review this film. Yeah. Tell me that Uh, again. No, I'm not going to mention it on the air. (laughs) All right. But, uh, um, he will not be offended by the fact that I called him a perv. He delights. No, no, that's an accomplishment. Um, and it's one of those characteristics of his that I like him in spite of it. I still love the guy. (laughs) Big fan of the guy. Yeah. Yeah. So good to know that you listen, buddy. Uh, um, we will be doing your film next week. So he sent he sent me this in an Instagram message. I was like, hey, I love I, it. You know, I, I wish you guys would do this. Oh, we're so going to. We are going to do it. I didn't know that it was the 30th anniversary of the film. Yeah, 1990. So how apt, you know? Can't wait. Um, I know I've seen it before. It's been a long, long Same. time. I don't even think I've seen the whole thing. I mean, I was probably a kid when I saw it. Probably never should have been seeing it. I probably saw it 15 years ago, but that's been a while. So. Yeah, I, it's been longer than that because it takes place in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was living in Phoenix at the time, so it's probably been 25 years since I've seen All right. this movie. So this will be a fun one. Very much looking forward to it. Um, that's it. That's, that's all we that's, got. That's all we got. Until next time. We're done. We'll see you next time on the Film Harmonic. Bye. Substitute.